Okay, our passage for today is from Mark 12. Mark 12, starting in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful, and you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed. This is God's word. Well, we're going to look at this passage in two sections. The first, very brief, is we're just going to look at the question that Jesus is being asked. And then we're going to look at three parts to the answer that he gives. So first, let's look at the question that Jesus is being asked. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? On the surface, this looks like a very simple question, but actually uh, we can see even in the the passage itself that the the leaders are asking Jesus in order to trap him. They're using this question to trap him. And the reason it's a trapping type of question or a slippery question is because it's actually a very complicated question uh, in their time in history. Uh, I'd say it's a bit like a powder keg. If if you're familiar with that term, they would take barrels and they would stuff them with gunpowder and then they would be very explosive and this, this question is symbol, symbol, or similar. It's like a tinderbox. It could just blow at any minute. There's lots of ways Jesus could get it wrong and people could blow up at him. And it's like a spider web. All the different pieces are connected together. So on the surface, like I said, it's just a question about finances. Should, what should we do with our, some of our money? A denarius was about a day's wage. What should we do with this money? Should we pay this tax or not? Now, like we saw last week when we talked about finances in more detail, um, our finances are never quite so simple because they touch on all areas of our lives. We're holistic people and finances give us uh, opportunities in many different areas of our lives. So finances is not just a simple topic in and of itself. But this question they're asking is also a theological question. Beside me here, I have a picture of the coin that they're referencing. And I want you to notice two things about this coin. First, there's an inscription and it reads, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And so this this coin is making a theological claim that Caesar is God. And there's also a picture of Caesar on it. And so if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, there's a list of commands there that were central to uh, the Hebrew way of life that they were given from God. And one of the first commands is don't have any other gods before me. You're to have no other gods. So they're breaking that command, but they're also called not to make any images of God. And so this coin, even though it's just a day's wage, some people call it the tribute penny, it is breaking both of these commands for uh, the Jewish people. N.T. Wright, when writing about this coin, says, If the Romans had gone out of their way to be offensive to the Jews, they hardly could have done any better. And when Jesus, who is Mark's readers, or whose Mark readers now know to be the true king, the son of God, is standing there in the temple, ruled by the Jewish chief priests, the irony could hardly be any sharper. They have Jesus, who is claiming to be, as Mark 1, 1 says it, the son of God, the image of the invisible God, and he is standing there amongst them, claiming to be the king of Israel and king of the world. And then we've got this coin that has this face of someone else who is claiming to be a god 
as well. So the rulers are asking Jesus a theological question. What are you going to do about this other person who claims to be a god? Are you going to break his rules and not pay? Or are you going to break God's rules? Or, sorry, break God's rules and pay? Or break his rules and not pay? And so which side are you on? But it's not just the theological question. This is also a social justice question. Um, the Jewish people at the time that Jesus is being asked this question were under the oppression of the Romans. So the Romans were governing much of the known world and the Jewish people were one of the nations that they had um, subject to them. And they enforced this tax called a head tax. And a head tax meant that every person, every head had to pay this tax regardless of how much money you had, how much income you had or resources you had. Everyone had to pay. And it was a kind of double humiliation for the people who were underneath Rome. First of all, you were reminded every time you used their money that you were under Roman rule and the Romans made, their, made, made each person use their money. So they're saying you have to use our money, but not only that, you have to use it to pay us back. Pay us back for the privilege of being subjugated under us. So it's a double humiliation. And so the rulers are asking Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue to humiliate the people? the Jewish people, or are you going to promote justice and try to put Israel back uh, on its own to be its own sovereign nation? So it's a social justice question. And the response to the head tax also had some history in uh, the Jewish story. When, this, when Rome took over and this head tax was introduced, there was a revolt led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. And he had three parts to his revolt against Rome. The first was that he cleansed out the temple of any non-Jewish presence and anyone doing anything in, uh, corrupted in there, much like we saw Jesus do a couple chapters earlier. The second was he kicked out any foreigners that were in the holy city. And then finally, he told all the Jewish people to stop paying this head tax. Now, he, his revolution failed, but there was a lot of sympathy for him amongst the Jewish people. So... In this question that the, the leaders are asking Jesus, they're asking him, are you a revolutionary or not? You know, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? Are you on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? And so it's important that we appreciate just the fullness of this question and the difficulty that it is, it's posed on Jesus. Jesus is in a really tight spot here. And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this feeling uh, living 2,000 years later. It seems like many of the questions that we're dealing with and, and things that are talked about in social commentary are like this spider web powder keg type question that things are all connected together and we feel like it could blow up no matter how we answer. Questions about pronouns, questions about vaccines, our politics, our beliefs, all of these are, are just complex issues in our world that often get boiled down to a simple question. Which side are you on? Yes or no? Do you agree or don't you agree with me? So let's look at how Jesus answered this really difficult question in three parts to see if we can learn not only how we might deal with them today, but what we can learn in the way that Jesus responds himself. So we're going to look at three things. The first is how Jesus answers this question. That will be short. Then why he answers the question the way that he does. And then finally, what he wants everyone to hear in his answer. So how Jesus answers the question, why he answers in the way he does, and what he wants each of us to hear in his answer. So first, let's look at how Jesus answers this question. The Jewish leaders pose this question about the head tax as an either or. Is it lawful to pay Caesar or not? Should we pay him or shouldn't we? Now, 
Jesus is not beyond giving yes or no answers or very direct answers. We've seen him be very direct with his, with his disciples and with us. Follow me, you know, pick up your cross. But here he seems to resist giving a simple answer. It's not a yes or no. Look at what he does. He said to them, why are you testing me? So he discerns, why are they asking this question? What's going on behind it? And of course, for these uh, Jewish leaders, they're trying to trap him. So Jesus says, Put, bring a denarius to me. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. So he reframes the question in a way that he uh, is comfortable with answering. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And so he answers his reframed question to them. And this is not an isolated event in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is often asked very direct questions, but he'll do this. He'll discern what's going on behind, or he'll reframe, or he'll just totally deny the question altogether. I'll give you a couple examples. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well, and she asks him very direct questions. Should we worship here, or should we worship there? Which is correct. Jesus says neither. You're, you're asking the wrong question. And he discerns what's going on in that woman's life, and meets her there, and ministers, and reveals himself to her in a life-changing way. Um, At one point in Jesus' ministry, a person is brought before Jesus uh, with a physical problem, and they're asking, the the leaders ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's got this physical problem? And Jesus says, neither. You're on the wrong page. He reframes the question, and he looks at the man and heals him. He sees the person. uh, He sees what's going on behind the question, but he also sees the person that's standing in front of him, and he ministers to him a very pastoral moment. And so before we move on, I think there's something for us to learn here about how Jesus answers this question. I think many of us, and and I probably include myself in this group, we want very direct answers from not only scripture, but from Christians, especially when it comes to issues. What do Christians believe about these issues? And I just want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't always take these questions head on. And so I don't think we should feel the pressure to either. What Jesus always is doing is he's leaning into the questions and engaging with people. Even in this passage where the Jewish leaders are trying to trap him, he still engages with them. He does answer their question, but he does it in a different way. And his answer to them becomes an answer to everyone. He addresses them and that becomes an answer to everyone, something even we 2,000 years later can learn. Rather than having an answer for everyone, try to be the answer to them. And so he deals with them on their own basis of of who they are, why they're asking the question, and he does it in an indirect manner. And sometimes I think the most loving and helpful thing that we can do is discern the heart behind the question, reframe it, and engage in dialogue and an answer rather than just giving blanket statements. This is what Christians believe about anything. Because sometimes the issue, as we've seen with Jesus, is actually not the question itself, but something deeper, sometimes something personal, sometimes pastoral. So that's how Jesus answers the question. Why, why does he answer or why does Jesus reframe the question? Why can't he ans- uh, answer it directly? And this is going to get us into the meat, I think, of what we can learn from this passage. So in addition to trying to trap Jesus, the, the Jewish leaders Uh, their question is based on assumptions that they have about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like and what kind of king Jesus is and what the Messiah will do. Remember, they've got a Coleman barbecue version of each of those things and Jesus doesn't fit into them. 
They assume that as the Messiah, Jesus is trying to set up a kingdom that's going to look a lot like the empires of our world. So they assume that Jesus will probably lead a military revolution which will overthrow the previous government and then will institute things like their own monetary system, their own taxation on other people, and their own system of justice. They're basically setting up an empire just like the other empires of the world, Rome, Egypt, empires in our world today. So Jesus is the king, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark. He is coming to set up a kingdom, and he is instigating a type of revolution. But it's not going to look like the kingdoms of Caesar or the kingdom the Jewish leader had in mind. Listen to what Jesus says in John 18. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. They would use the same things that the empires of the world do. My servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jewish leaders. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. This is why Jesus answers the way that he does. Because the kingdom of God is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't look like the kingdoms of Rome or of Caesar. It doesn't function on the same assumptions. It doesn't use money, power, and status in the same ways. See, the power of the kingdom of God, it doesn't come from its ability to to, uh, militarily win or to subjugate people through taxes, but comes from the authority of God and from the king who pours out his life in service for us. Reigning and ruling in the kingdom of God doesn't look like a dictatorship. It doesn't look like Caesar, where the whole pyramid of the rest of the people in in, uh, his kingdom were geared towards serving him at the top. But rather, Jesus is, is the opposite way. That he says, if the first will become last like he does and serve us. That's reigning and ruling looks like serving in Jesus' kingdom. It's a fundamentally different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world and the empires that we see. And we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. And the early church really understood this. They didn't try to move into positions of power or to form militias or overthrow the government in any type of way. But rather, they took this uh, model of Jesus that he came, how he came to live and to serve. And as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, to pick up their cross daily to become servants of all, to become last and not first. They took those as their rallying cry and and they lived those things out. And Paul writes it beautifully in in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. We're part of this kingdom of God. That's where our identity is, but our feet are still in this world and we're bringing the kingdom here in this way, but it's a different kind of kingdom. It's fundamentally different and we don't use the same tactics as the world. And so these, the early church was marginalized in society. They were a small group of people. As I talked about a couple weeks ago, they, many of them were martyred. They died for their faith. People didn't understand them and thought they were a threat because they thought they were going to use the same, uh, the same tactics to overthrow the government. But they took up a position of serving the most vulnerable and marginalized in society. And because of that, over time, Christianity grew. It grew to the place where it actually, many people were Christians. And the Emperor Constantine in 300 uh, AD made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And so it's a beautiful thing that Christianity is growing. But it also, when it became the official religion of Rome, it became something it wasn't supposed to be. And this is the beginning of what we call Christendom, where the kingdoms of God becomes mixed with the empires 
of the world, which is not what Jesus came to do. He said the kingdom of God is fundamentally different than the empires of the world. Christendom brought those two things together. And we have some good things from this legacy in the Western church. Education systems and much of our modern healthcare system, uh, universal uh, human rights, a lot of these things come from this uh, Christendom, from a mixing of empire and Christianity. But also some really, really terrible things have happened in history by the mixing of empire and Christianity. The kingdom of God was brought about by sword and coercive power rather than humble service. In North America, one Christian author writes, stolen lands, broken treaties, massacres, residential schools, forced assimilation, and Indian reserves populate a partial list of not only sins, but unspeakable crimes that have been perpetuated on native peoples by in the name of Christ. Things we're all probably as Canadians familiar with. And these are the reasons why today Christianity is often looked at negatively in our context. It's this history and these atrocities that have happened. And I think that, that uh, my personal belief is that this has happened in large part because Christians missed what Jesus is trying to say to these Jewish leaders. That the kingdom of God is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world. They assumed that Jesus was going to build an empire just like Rome. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what my empire looks like. So before we move on, I think it's important for us, um, you know, for those of us who love Jesus, and maybe we've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen this humble Savior, and, and his life, his death, his resurrection gives us so much hope, and we long for this kingdom of God, this picture of shalom that's painted in the Bible. But we live today as Christians, where, where Christianity is looked at as an oppressive uh, and failed system from the past. How do, we, um, how do we walk forward with our faith? I think there's three different things that I'd like to say before we move on to the last point. For those of us who are living a post-Christian Christendom, Christendom has died out. We're living in this post-Christendom context where Christianity um, is looked at very negatively. There's three things I think we can do. The first is that we can repent. Now, repent, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, is not only to confess and be open about things, the terrible things that have been done in, the, in Christendom in the name of Jesus. We also commit to not acting in the same way ourselves. So we, we confess, but we also change our action. And if you're not familiar with much of the history, especially in North America, of what Christendom has done, um, I would recommend a book to you. Jenny uh, Schantz from Inner Hope gave it to me a couple weeks ago, and I've read about half of it. It's very, very eye-opening. It's a book called Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, and uh, it's very helpful to understand uh, from an American Aboriginal perspective, uh, and a, there's an Kore American Korean writer there as well, and a theological perspective, just how much damage has been done through Christendom. Um, and what happens when we pair Jesus, we try to pair Jesus with empire and push those things together. So that's what it means to be repent is to be knowledgeable and to um, confess those things and to try to change our ways. But it also means that we continually respond in repentance and humility when we hear of how these Christendom atrocities have an ongoing effect in our world. We're continually responding in repentance and humility. 
I think some of us may be ready to do this, but some of us also maybe get very tired when we hear this continual call on Christians to repent for the actions done in the church from the past. And we might think, why do I have to respond from this? You know, I wasn't there. If I'm speaking for myself, my, you know, none of my ancestors were on that boat coming across to America. None of my ancestors were running residential schools. Why, why should I respond in humility and repentance? Well, there's two reasons. I think the first is that there's historical realities that play out in our world today. Those historical atrocities that were done uh, still have um, ramifications today. Yes, you and I weren't there, but the perpetrators of those crimes carried the name of Jesus. They had crosses on their shields. And as it saddens us, and I know that it saddens Jesus, we are also carrying that same name. And it's a beautiful privilege for us to carry the name of Jesus and take up our cross daily in a very different way, in a way of service. But we also carry the same history as those people in Christendom. And so we have the privilege through our repentance to try to create a new story, a new legacy for Christianity and for Jesus, not of triumphalistic power, but of humble love and repentance. And when we repent, we show that we are humble and that we are open to trying to pave a new way for Christianity. Secondly, ongoing repentance creates space for us to be positioned as Jesus wants us. See, the goal of repentance in the Bible isn't just to continually feel bad about ourselves, but actually to be humbled, humbled before Jesus and in front of others. It's to take up the position that we've seen Jesus taking in the Gospel of Mark, that although he is God, he became a human and he died for us. He took this path of downward mobility as we've been talking about. And we follow in his footsteps by taking the same attitude as we saw a couple weeks ago by becoming nobodies through repentance. This is why Martin Luther said the entire life of the believer is repentance because he's calling us to this continual path of humility before God that we always have things where we can continually be humbled in front of him and if this is us, if our lives are, are run by humility and by repentance, if that's just our default reaction, that will continue to create the character of Christ in us and we will become humble people. We'll look more like Jesus. And so these continual calls to repentance from the church for the atrocities that were done allow us actually to take very practically the position of Jesus, to be humbled and to continue to repent. So that's the first step that we need to repent. The second is to detox. Christendom meant that the, the church or Christianity and the culture were the same thing. They're trying to make those things merge together. And so the call to detox is to reject that marriage and to reject formation from our culture, to detox from materialism, from consumerism, and our preoccupation with status and performance that we have in our culture, and to say those might be the way of our culture, but they're not the way of followers of God, of people who live with our identity in the kingdom of heaven. So it's to detox individually, but it's also to detox as a church, and to remove the practices and the biases and the institutions that have Christendom legacy or perspectives. Now those are maybe more... Uh, ethereal or more like uh, big ideas, you might be asking, how do I do this? How do I detox as a person? Well, whenever you find yourself starting a sentence with, as a Christian, I should be able to, or you feel drawn to that 
as a Christian, I have the right to X, whatever it is, meet during COVID, have prayer in schools. I shouldn't be looked down upon. Whatever those things are for you, then you're functioning out of a Christendom mindset and not the kingdom of God. And we need to pull those things apart just to let go. You know, in Canada, it's so wonderful that we have many rights as, as people and as Christians, but we need to let go of those things and pull them apart to detox from them if we're going to have a, a way forward and a way of witness in post-Christendom culture. So we need to repent, we need to detox, and then third, we need to shift. The Anabaptist writer Stuart, Stuart Murray writes about sh- seven shifts that we need to make as a church in post-Christendom. Uh, moving from, sorry, Christendom to post-Christendom. And I'm just going to mention them quickly for us. The first is the center from, or the, the shift from the center to the margins, that we no longer expect to be at the halls of power, but we take our place on the margins with the poor and the powerless. That we shift from the majority to the minority. That we lose the expectation of being a Christian culture and we regain our identity as a prophetic and creative minority. The third is that we move from settlers or a settler mindset to sojourners. That we let go of the settledness and the security and the comfort that characterized Christendom. And we become more like a church in exile, learning how to live out our lives as resident aliens and as pilgrims. We move from privilege, a place of privilege, to a place of plurality, that there is going to be many voices. Our voice is no longer privileged in the world We're not going to be having a privileged status as a church or as a Christian or as a pastor, but rather we learn to work together with people who have different opinions than us and and allow hopefully the good news of Jesus to function as a bright light in that space. We move from control to witness. We repent and let go of any aspirations of top-down control through organization or culture or story. And we focus on our call to serve and witness to our King who walked the path of humble service and witness to others. We've, we move from maintenance to discipleship and mission. We stop trying to maintain our position in society and people in our churches. And we focus on forming people to become like Jesus and allowing their light to shine in the darkness. And then finally, we move from being an institution to a movement. We worry less about our institutions and we focus more and more on the movements of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the world. I think these seven shifts are so key for us that we repent of Christendom legacy and the atrocities that came with that, that we learn to detox ourselves from the Christendom perspective, that we pull away from expecting to have uh, or, or culture and Christian Christianity to be the same thing, and then we shift in all of these ways that we've just talked about. And for many, I think this will sound like bad news. Um, And there is something to be sad about and even mourn the loss of of being able to be in control and being able to be at the center. But I think there's also something to be celebrated here, rediscovered and a really great hope for us as 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 we move into this landscape that already exists. That we can celebrate that the church militant and triumphant or triumphalistic is over. And we can rediscover what it means to, to be people who follow this humble King Jesus who always moves to the margins in the Gospel of Mark. And that we can have hope that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive. 
He's alive in us. He's alive in his church. And so there's always hope for the world that his kingdom will come and his will will be done. Not in a Christendom way, but in a way where our citizenship is in heaven. So that's the second thing uh, we learn. That's why Jesus answers the way that he does, because his kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of the world. And we need to remember that as followers of Jesus in a post-Christendom context. So lastly, let's look at what Jesus wants everyone to hear through his answer. So let's go back to the passage and just walk through it to look at Jesus' response one more time. The leaders ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. This is really interesting. Two things here. Jesus doesn't seem to have any money. He's obvious that he doesn't have a denarius on him. So he's poor. And he's also assuming that these leaders have a denarius on them, that they are breaking the law by carrying around this graven image with them. There are the true hypocrites in the story. So they brought a coin. Whose image in inscription is this? Jesus asked them. Now, this is obviously a teaching technique. Jesus is asking aloud so that everybody can hear, but it's also a subtle jab towards Caesar because Jesus is kind of like, well, who is this guy on the coin? I don't know. I've never seen him before. And everybody there would be, of course, like saying like, this is Caesar. How could you not know who Caesar is? Um, It reminds me of a very famous ESPN interview done with Shaquille Uh, O'Neal. He's an NBA center, one of the greatest of all time. And they had one of the greatest teams of all time with the Lakers. But Kobe had this ongoing, or sorry, Shaq had this ongoing feud with Kobe, one of his famous teammates. And so the ESPN interviewer asked uh, Shaq, will you ever be able to mend the fences with Kobe? So he said, do you ever see a day where it'll be possible for you to sit down and have a talk with Kobe Bryant? And Shaq said, who? ESPN said, Kobe Bryant. Shaq said, you know, I'm not familiar with that name. I have a lot of names. I have a lot of names in my head but I'm not familiar with that name. That's the same kind of thing that Jesus is doing here. It's just, that was just a subtle or big diss to Kobe Bryant. Kobe, uh, uh, Jesus is doing the same thing here to Caesar. He's throwing just a little bit of shade on him. And it's funny, uh, but it, you know, he's also saying something profoundly theological here. I mean, the scheme of things, in the scheme of life, according to Jesus, Caesar is nothing. He's a nobody. He's the true nobody. In the Gospel of Mark, Caesar is only a sub-ruler at best. So he has power in our world, but he is also under the dark forces of the world. Bruxy Cavey says it this way, if Jesus is God, it means Caesar is not. If he is the true image of God, then this coin means nothing. And it bursts, it busts the myth that the universe is run through the power of coercive force. Rather, the universe is run, called into existence, and sustained every day by the power of humble love through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So they tell him, Caesar's, that's whose face is on here. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. So Jesus says to them, give to Caesar what's his. You know, it's his face, it's his money, it's his empire. You know, give it back to him. My kingdom is utterly different than this kingdom, is what he's trying to say. So this reflects him, this coin, go ahead and give it back to him. But we're left asking about the second part of this question. What has God's image on it? What are the things we are to give to him? And the first page of the Bible has a very startling claim that it makes about this. It says that every person, every person is made with an image stamped on them. The image of God. 
And as we'll see when we study it in a few months, this is a revolutionary thought. You know, in the ancient Near East, the time that Jesus is, is, uh, is preaching here, um, they thought that maybe only people like Caesar, kings, were the image of God. And that's why everybody had to come underneath and serve those people. And so the Bible is saying something totally different. It's not just kings, but every man and even every woman, every tribe and every tongue, every person has the image of God stamped on them. So Caesar can come and lay claim to what is his, but in this passage, Jesus is saying God is also coming to lay claim to what is his as well. Everything that has the image of God stamped on it. And there's a few things I want us to hear as that's every single one of us, every person that was listening to Jesus speaking, but also every one of us that are listening to this today. That Jesus is saying here that he wants you and he wants I. He's saying you're mine. You're mine. Again, when we shorten the gospel to say that Jesus died for our sins, we can miss this part of the story, this deep divine longing that God has for us. You know, you're not just a massive disappointment to God that he had to send Jesus on a rescue mission because we're just, you know, so uh, terrible. It's, he, Jesus didn't come redeeming us just because it's his job. He came out of divine love that he longs for us. He wants us. He wants you. And he bought us back. Remember in the gospel of Mark, the primary word that's used for what Jesus is doing through his death is that he is ransoming us. He's ransoming us from our enslavement to sin and the dark forces and the people that are like Caesar who long to put their image on us. Jesus comes and he says, give it back to me. It doesn't have your image on it, Caesar. It doesn't have the image of the divine empire. It has my image on it. And he gives his life to buy us back. Give it back, my image to me. And he has a plan to restore each of us to our true humanity and the true image in us. That we are called, as we've looked at in the Gospel of Mark, to look at Jesus' life. To see what it means to fully be in the image of God. And then to hear his call, to hear him say, come and follow me, be remade and become human again. To welcome him, to become good soil, and then to become like him, to, to let our lives be shaped by this downward path, following our Jesus who took the same path, becoming a servant, and the first who became last. And then to reflect him into the world. This is how the kingdom truly comes. It's not through coercive force, it is not through any kind of military revolution. It's not through power like that, but through becoming who we were made to be, allowing this divine image through the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the Holy Spirit to actually take shape in us, that our lives would look more and more like Jesus. And so we shine that out into the world. And that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to reclaim his image in the world, to recapture it, through ransoming us through his death, and then to call us back to him to be remade into the image of God. And to do that, he needs all of us. And that's the part in this series in the Gospel of Mark, I think that's been really hard as we looked at all these discipleship sayings of Jesus, that he's continually calling us to give more and more of ourselves over to him. And if you're like me, it can, it can feel almost like Jesus is like Caesar here. He's calling us for more tax, more and more tax, Give more of yourself over. That's one way of looking at it. But what Jesus is trying to say in this passage is something different. He's not coming and asking you for everything to ruin your life. He's bought you back and he wants all of you. 
because he wants you to live in line with who you were made to be. That like a dirty old coin, he wants to come and shine us up, all of us, that the fullness of who we are would reflect the fullness of who God is in the world. His image is stamped on you and on me. Will you give to God what is God's? Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. Um, We thank you for the wisdom in how you, Jesus, answered this question. We thank you that your kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of the world. Help us to live into that reality. And thank you that you have stamped your image on us and that you want to reflect yourself through our broken and humble lives into the world. So that's my prayer. Would you do that in my life? I pray that for each person that's listening, that you would make us more and more into the image of God. Help us to see this beautiful story that you have modeled for us, that you have bought us back, and that you long to remake us into your image. And we pray that that would be continually true of our church here, that we would not be a church that's trying to move to the center or grab power in any way, but that by being on the margins, you would allow us to continually reflect your light into the city that so desperately needs it. We pray that these things would be true of us and become continually true as we continue to worship together today. In Christ's name, amen.